Mm, good morning. Good morning. Some of y'all seem like so far away. Uh, that's all right. All right. If you have your Bibles, just kind of hold on to them, okay? Uh, we are going to, unlike usual, we're going to kind of bounce around to a bunch of different verses. And uh, part of that's just because the nature of what we're going to uh, try to accomplish today. We're going to try to work through, okay? And notice try. Uh, but we have no choice. Like, we have to get this done. So I've got to finish. So we may be here till 2. Uh, I'm just kidding. We can't because then we have pressure coming from the other end because they have a meet here today after we get done with service. So uh, all that to say, we're, we've got a big task ahead of us. And what we're going to do, we're going to work through the whole covenant. All right? We're going to start. And of course, that's minus page two and three, right? We're just going to work through page one, because really page two and three are all kind of summarized in page one of our covenant. Um, so with that said, I just want to say uh, that I love you guys, that the past 20, this will be week 20 of the covenant community series. I'm really sad to see it go. I don't know if you are. Someone said to me, I'm just tired of that blasted video, uh, you know, that comes on as our transition. And I'm I'm kind of tired of it too, but uh, Russ did a good job on it, and we've gotten a lot of mileage out of that video. Because uh, this series was supposed to be like 14 weeks, uh, so we took the liberty to extend it another six. Um, so anyways, though, it's been awesome. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. And today, I think, in my opinion, I hope be one of the most enjoyable services for our church family. Uh, we're in a different place today than we were a year ago than we were six months ago, and we're in a very big different, very much different place than where we were when we started with 11 people in our house right down the road, and God has done so much, and uh, has just, he's changed hearts, he's grown people's lives, people's marriages, and um, I was telling a pastor about kind of our membership process, and kind of what we're doing, and, and our, and our our membership covenant. And he goes, man, that's a little intense, isn't it? That's a little extreme, isn't it? And I said, well, first of all, I think our God's pretty extreme. I think what he demands, is, demands of us is very extreme. And I said, extreme is why we're part of why we're where, by God's grace, extreme is part of why we are where we're at today. Because, like, just the body here, I think, has an abnormal commitment to following Christ. It should be the norm. Like, this should be the norm. It's not the norm, but it's an abnormal commitment to Christ, in relatively speaking. But it's a, a, a healthy commitment, and it's something that we can even strive to be committed more to. And uh, I think this covenant for, for us as a body is just the next step in saying this is who we're going to be as Renovation Church. Like, I want you guys, when we read through this covenant and what we talk about in this covenant, you should be able to sit in here on Sunday mornings. You should be able to sit in Bible studies Tuesday, Wednesday nights. You should be able to, during the week, when you're thinking about your brothers and sisters that are part of your community, you should be able to think about the things that are reflected in this covenant and say, I know that my brother so-and-so is committed to Christ and he's committed to me. And these things in this covenant are true of him or true of 
her. And then the same thing for you, that it should be something like a badge almost, like, like a policeman wearing a badge. This is kind of like a badge of, of saying this is what we're committed to, to you. Like when I say as, as your pastor that these are my commitments to you, these, these are the explicit statements from God's word that pertain to my relationship with you. And we as a body should be able to sit in here on Sunday mornings, Tuesday, when, whenever we're gathered and even when we're not gathered and be able to reflect upon what it means to be the church and what our commitment to each other looks like. It's a serious commitment. I want to read to you a passage from Ecclesiastes. As a matter of fact, I want us to read it together. It's going to be up on the screen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 through 5 says, let's read it together. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not, come on, you talk a little louder. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. He, for he has no pleasures in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Now, obviously, in Ecclesiastes, he's referring to owing some sort of, some sort of finance here. But the implication, and we know this throughout the rest of the Scripture, the implication here is much more than just simply owing someone some finances. This is a, a vow. And we talked about, in the past, we've talked about our commitments. When we make commitments to each other, those commitments are also before God. So I think sometimes we have an easy way of getting out of marriage because it's just, it's just my commitment to that person. No, it's a commitment to that person, but it's a commitment to God as well. And so what we're doing here today and what we've been talking about, this is not just something we're making to each other, something that's, that we can make light of, even though that should not be made light of. This is something that we're making to each other and to God and before God. And it's a commitment that is real and a commitment that we should should, should keep a commitment that should be valuable to us. Does that make sense? Like we should hold this valuable, something that means a lot to us. It's not just a document. Like honestly, if, if we could somehow this, which those words in, in, in some shape and form are written on our hearts, you know, as we study God's word, like it's not about a piece of paper. It's about being the body of Christ with each other for the God's glory. We remind you a couple things. A covenant is not required in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that says that a church has to have a covenant. But then we talked about is, if it's not required, is it, is it uh, forbidden in Scripture? And we saw it's not forbidden in Scripture. Matter of fact, quite the contrary. We see our God's is a God of covenants. I mean, Old Covenant, New Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, the Abrahamic Covenant. We, we see lots of covenants. We see God concerned with making covenants and keeping covenants. So then we ask, is it, is it, it's not forbidden, but we see it in Scripture. Is it beneficial? Is it beneficial for us to have a covenant? And that's where I've been talking about the past few minutes is it's beneficial for us as a body to look around and go, man, I know that that person is committed. He's committed to these things, to being the body it's, it's, like, it's like the covenant is my statement to you and your statement to me and your statement to each other of how you're going to live out the call of Christ in our lives as a body of believers.
It's very beneficial. Incredibly beneficial. Let me say this. Um, I just want to get this out in the very beginning. For those of you who are not currently members, okay? Let me, let me say this. If, if you know God is calling you to this body, I mean, let me encourage you then to, to participate. Like, there's going to be a point later on where we're going to read the covenant together, the first page of the covenant together. Let me encourage you to participate. Um, let me encourage you to do what we talked about last week with the card. Um, at the end of the day, you won't be a member officially because um, there's some more process we need to go through. But it can still be a, a day for you to remember something that you were a part of. Even though you're kind of your officially joining came a little bit later and the affirmation of that from the body, but you're still participating because you know God is drawing you here. Um, if you're, and then the second group is if you're still praying through whether or not this is the body God wants you to be a part of, let me encourage you to participate, particularly by praying and watching. Those two things, praying and watching. Especially... Especially if you're not a member, but you're definitely a follower of Christ. You know, you may not be a fully committed member of this family, but you're still a member of the universal family. And so you can worship with us. You can praise God for what's going on here. And I want you to encourage you. That's a very real thing that can happen. And I want that to happen. If you're not sure if this is for sure, and you're still praying through that, um, man, still worship with us, right? Just still praise God for what's going on here today. Celebrate with us. And the thing is, and we're, going to talk, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the membership class. But guys, what we do here as a body, our object is God, right? That we're worshiping God. And our audience, though, is kind of threefold. Our audience is God. Uh, we worship with each other. And we worship with each other before the world. Now, the world may not be with eyeballs looking in on this room today, but the decisions that we make in here today and the commitment that we make in here today, I believe will have a major effect on the way we live this life out in front of the world when they do have eyeballs on us, when they can see us. Our worship is meant to glorify God before the world. It's not supposed to be a hidden thing. There are private times of private worship where the world doesn't see that. Times of fasting, things like that. But our worship, guys, this is worshiping. And we do this before the world. And I want us to be a body that the world looks at and goes, they're a peculiar people. They love this God that they cannot see, but they love him and have given their lives for him. And given their lives for each other as they seek to follow the cross. So, with all that said, let's start working through the covenant. What we're going to do, we're going to read just like a sentence or so. I want us to read this. Um, actually, I, I, you don't have to read it with me. Just read it in your head, and then later on we're going to read it publicly together. Um, but I want us to read this, and uh, we're just going to work through just kind of a sentence at a time. What I'm going to do, some of these points are going to sound familiar, uh, there's just going to be kind of some highlights of what we've talked about over the past 19, 20 weeks. So, the covenant begins with this. As members of Renovation Church, we affirm this covenant with one another by God's grace for our good and ultimately for God's glory. As members. Membership. We're going to stop right there. Membership. Membership is, is a forgotten term, I think, today. 
It's, it's kind of become almost a dirty word in church culture. I think oftentimes for the sake of church growth, membership has become a dirty term. We, we, uh, in traditional church, we think of membership as getting the vote. We think of you're someone they call on every time, you know, they need workers in the church. Of course, we kind of do that too. But, uh, but as a member, you think, oh, that's, that's, people have to go to business meetings or get to go to business meetings, get to vote. And, and that, that's what membership has really, I, and I hate to say this, but has strictly kind of become. Like when we think of membership, you ask any, particularly any Baptist in the area, what does membership mean? Well, it means I get to vote at business meetings. <sighs> no. No, like, where do we, where do we, I don't know where, at what point we got to that, but membership, I think then what's happened in newer churches and church growth, churches that are really focused on kind of in the church growth model of things, they, they just kind of want to throw it out the window. Well, that's kind of the bad perception, so let's just kind of throw the whole thing out the window. So we won't really talk about membership, or we'll call it something else, which I don't care about the semantics of it, but... Um, We'll call it something else, but membership has become something we, we just don't like to talk about. We want to keep the commitment level low so that we keep people coming. This, this is not the case here, right? Like our commitment level is like up here and people still keep coming. Like, I mean, this just shows that God's power is, is way beyond the use of a term membership. But what we do see in Scripture is that the idea of committing your life together to a group of people. Now obviously, God can move us on, and he, he transitions and moves us to different places and can call us out of the body to start other churches or to be a part of other. But he can do that. And, but you're committing so far as you can see your life to this body. We, we see this going on in the New Testament. We see believers committed together to live out the gospel together. But we talked about membership is implied. In Scripture, it's not something that Scripture talks about directly, but it's implied. And what are the areas it's implied in? It's implied in the fact that they gathered. So there's a group of believers in Ephesus or a group of believers in Jerusalem. They gathered together. They gathered together regularly. We also see church membership, I think, even more strongly implied in church discipline. Like how do we remove someone from something of which they are not a part of? How do, how do we do that? Now, again, a piece of paper can mean nothing. I'm talking about you're committed to this body from which if you were removed, you would be missed and you would miss something. That's what we're talking about, right? The paper is simply more like a symbol. It's expression. It's a symbol. Church membership is also implied in church leadership. How do I know those for which I will give an account for? How do the elders in the body know those for which they will give an account for? Those who show up every three months? No. Those who say, I'm a part of this body. I'm committed to this body. That's who I'm accountable for. And it's valuable for, not just for me to know who I'm accountable for and Russ to know who he's accountable for, but it's valuable for you to know that there is an elder accountable for you. That's valuable. And I hope you saw that as we talked through church leadership, but that's valuable. But church membership is also implied in church accountability. Holding each other accountable, leading each other to the cross. 
having those hard conversations when, when they may not be fun. We do that with those who we're a part of. Now, does that mean that someone's not a part of our church that we don't ever help them work through sin? No, 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 it's not the point. But we do know at Scripture, the implication of being accountable is we're committed to this. Let me give you an example. Casey and I, uh, the pastor of UBC, have a, uh, uh, yeah, ah, yeah. Uh, Casey and I, sorry, elephant in the room, right? Uh, Casey and I have, have made a commitment. We have a commitment to hold each other accountable. Well, what's that commitment to? That we have to get together regularly, right? Like we have to meet together. We have to talk together somehow, in some shape or form. And, but it's, it's more than we couldn't say, let's hold each other accountable and then never like talk, never do anything about it. Like we had to do that. We, we had to make the commitment to do it and then follow through with it. So church membership is applied in church accountability. Also, what, what else about members? Members of a family. Members of a family. This is not, and I, and I know you guys believe this with all your hearts, but I just want to state it again. This is not a cold institution. It may be chilly in here, but this is not a cold religious institution. This is a body, a very real body. A body that's alive. It's alive by the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We're a family, just like your family, except our bond has the potential to be even stronger than your blood family because we are connected by the power of Christ. We're a family, a real family. And I was telling a couple I met with yesterday, I said, I'm just excited about what God is getting ready to add to the body through you and what the body has to offer you. Like it's both ways. Like every time God adds to our body or takes away from our body, there should be aspects that we miss and aspects that we're excited to be gaining and aspects of which we can help them as a body. It's not just, well, that's two more people and, and yeah, cool. So much more than that. And I hope over these past 19 weeks you have seen that. And I also want to say this is a covenant is is a restatement of God's word. What we've talked about in this covenant, even pages two and page three, none of that is in addition to God's word. They are founded in God's word, flow out of God's word, simply restating, in most cases, God's word. So, let's continue reading on in the covenant. The next phrase says, having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to surrender our lives to him. I think this statement is something that really defines us as a church. And it's, it's subtle in here, but I think it's very, very important for us to draw attention to something. And that is that first phrase, having been brought by divine grace. That phrase right there, for us, puts emphasis on God's work in salvation. I do believe that sets us apart from lots of other churches. I think this is a very valuable and key phrase for us. If you remember back, for those of you who were here in the gospel series, we talked about God's role in salvation and how the emphasis is there. In Scripture, God's role in salvation. And I'm not going to 
They're not going to expose and work through all of that right now, but I just want to bring out the emphasis that we here want to emphasize almost exclusively, okay? Not exclusively, but almost God's role in salvation. What do we mean by that? Okay, without having to dive into this and explain everything, what that means is that we can't come to faith in Christ unless He first works in us. Unless He first changes our hearts. So we talk about regeneration, and we talk about the calling of the Holy Spirit, so God draws us to Himself, and there's a point that drawing sometimes can take years, sometimes a lifetime. But it's a drawing, and then there's a point in which, in time, where God regenerates our hearts. Where he he kind of turns the light bulb on, if you will. He, 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 he changes our desires at that moment, begin to change from darkness to light. And it's and, and, and so much more. And, but the point is, is it's, we don't do anything to earn. And all of us would agree, and many churches in the area would agree, well, I don't earn my salvation. Yes. But then, in the same very breath, it's about that prayer you prayed or it's about walking that aisle. And those can be outward expressions of something that happened internally, but it's about what God did internally. Having been brought by divine grace. Romans 3.10, just to kind of put the nail on the coffin, 3, 10 through 18. I just want to read verses 10 and 12. It says, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God, seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Key phrase, no one seeks for God. We must be brought by divine grace. Everyone in this world, our, our kids included, they're seeking the world, seeking themselves, and God has to bring them out of that because we seek nothing um, except for that that is evil. That We don't seek God. So salvation is ultimately the work of God. Salvation is ultimately the work of God. Salvation also involves repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. Again, our goal here today is not to, not to dive into these passages real, real deep. We've spent 20 or 19 weeks doing that. So we're just overviewing, but a quick couple passages. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore... And turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. There's a turning from sin. Now, what happens when you're driving a car, and you're going down the road, and you make a turn? What happens? You were headed this direction, and now you're headed this direction. So you turned from something to something. So repentance is not enough. There's a belief aspect. So when you turn, you turn to something, and that to something has to be faith in Christ, belief in Christ. At its very, at its very, very core, very minimal there, John three fourteen through 15 says, and Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's repentance, it's turning, turning from our ways, Satan's ways, the world's ways, turning to God from 
and to God. Belief in Christ, belief that he's the son of God, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he's our savior. That's where we believe those things. We don't have to necessarily understand them to their fullest. Because we, I don't think we ever will, maybe until we reach heaven, but that's part of then growing. Right? So salvation involves repentance and belief. Salvation involves surrender. Again, I believe this is something that sets us apart. Surrender. Salvation involves surrender. Luke 14, 26, we're just going to read through 27, says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I, I think that passage is many things, but one thing it is, it's, a, it's an indictment on our call to salvation today. Our fluffy, feel-good call to follow Christ. You know, he's going to make everything better. It's going to be a glorious day. Yeah, you may still have some struggles, but, you know, Jesus is awesome. Come follow him. And I just, I don't see Jesus making that plea to the crowds. He says it's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything. You have to put me above even your family. I believe what Jesus is saying is that your love for me has to be so extreme that your love for everybody else looks like hatred. It's your love for me. And we say, hey, come just pray this prayer and, and uh, join this church or whatever. Our call to follow Christ is a call to surrender. Now, again, the work that then we commence forth in after that is continuing to surrender more and more and more and more of our lives. A a guy that Russ and I know posted on his Facebook this morning. He goes, I've decided to fire myself as CEO of my life and to to hire Christ, okay? Uh, Now, I don't want to get into the theological implications of that, but the point is, is that He's our Lord, and we continue living through that and working that out. And part of working out our salvation, as Philippians 2 talks about it, is surrendering more and more control because we want control. Even if you're a submissive, passive person, you want control, at least of your life. It involves surrender. Three things that we see in this passage. Again, you can go look at it more in depth later, or more in depth later, sorry, uh, three things that Jesus requires in order to follow him. Jesus requires superior love. I believe Jesus demands all of our love. I don't, I don't think we love him with 90% of it and then we give 10 to everybody else. I think we give him 100 and then we love everyone else with the love of Christ. That's the only way for it to be unconditional. It's the only way for it to be unending, for it to be eternal. We love, all of our love goes to Christ. Jesus requires exclusive loyalty. Exclusive loyalty. Carry your cross. I believe when Jesus in this passage, again, without going to detail, because I want to so much, but when, when he's saying to carry your cross, what's going on in that picture? Someone who's carrying their cross has no dreams for tomorrow, has no desires left. They're not thinking about what they're eating tomorrow for dinner or where they're going on vacation next week. When they're carrying their cross, their pride is gone. And they're walking to their death. 
And so when Jesus, I believe Jesus' call in this passage when he tells us to carry our cross is we are dead to our dreams, dead to our desires, we're dead to our plans, we're, we're dead to all of those things and we are alive to Christ's plans and Christ's dreams and his desires for our lives. What he wants us to do in every step of the way. Exclusive loyalty. Jesus requires total loss. Total loss. For the cause of Christ, we give up everything. Now, does that sound anything like come forward and pray this prayer and, you know, just, is, is that what that sounds like? No. Now, does that mean that, that, that a five-year-old or an eight-year-old, whatever, has to understand all the complexities of this? No. But they need to know that Jesus is Lord of their life. He is the boss. Whatever term semantics communicate, that he is now Lord and demands everything, that's what they need to understand. This was Jesus' invitation to be a follower. Let our invitation look similar, if not identical. The night that Anthony got saved in, in our office, I think, God, you can see the drawing of the Holy Spirit, and you kind of see the light bulb click on. And so we just, we worked through that sermon. Like, what does Jesus demand? Like, what, what's going on? So I, I literally, in my office, I pulled up my sermon notes, uh, and we just worked right through it, didn't we? And, 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 of course, you guys see the fruits and what God has done in Anthony's life since then. I'm not saying you're going to preach someone a sermon. My point is this is what Christ demands. We're going to preach the word. We're going to preach the same thing. This is the kind of community we want to be as well. It's not just we want to present the gospel this way, but we want to live our lives this way, right? We want to live our lives in total surrender and exclusive loyalty and superior love for Christ. And that will be a community then that reflects the glory of God. Not a community that is self-centered, self-serving, light-hearted about the gospel. This is the kind of community we are committing to be. So let's read on. And having been baptized as Christians in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we come in together to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. Very quickly, we are a, the church is made up of baptized believers. Baptized believers. I'm going to say a statement, and before you gasp for air, let me explain. Baptism is necessary. It's a necessary part of our salvation. Baptism does not save us. However, there is no category in the New Testament for an unbaptized believer. They believed, and then they were baptized. They believed, then they were baptized. So it's not saying that baptism, we don't believe that baptism saves us, but it is a necessary next step in our salvation. It's part of that working out our salvation. It's part of, I mean, that we, uh, Baptists like to call it the first step of obedience, is being baptized. And I do think that's a good uh, phrasing for baptism. It's our first step. Of course, a lot of them won't go so far as to say it's the first step in working out our salvation. I'm comfortable saying that so long as we understand that we're not earning our salvation, we're, but we are working it out. Philippians 2. So baptism is necessary. So I, that's why I believe baptism is necessary for, for church membership. These are baptized believers. There's no category 
for unbaptized believers. Moving on. This community exists to make disciples of all nations. I will say this, um, and I don't want to dwell on it. I think this is one of our weakest spots as a church. I think it is. Our focus on making disciples of all nations and what that looks like both locally and you know, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But it's not weak. I don't believe in the sense of we've neglected it. I think it's just weak because we're trying to develop it and find where God's call is for us as a church in those areas. And so, you know, as we prepare to go to Haiti and all those things, that's a part of developing this part of our body. And I want you guys to anxiously await and see how God uses the body to fulfill all this. But I don't want you to wait in the sense that you don't participate in sharing the gospel and winning people to Christ yourself. And have your own. you don't have to wait for the body to do those things. But corporately, we want to be about these things, and we're going to be about these things. Let's read Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Let's just stop right there for just a moment. All authority. And then that authority, as we talked about in the series, has been given to the church. So in Christ, I think a lot of times we we quote this passage starting at 19. And I think we miss a lot in verse 18. Because he goes, then he says, to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. But we go though, I think it's very valuable. If we're getting ready to go on a trip, if we're getting ready to go on on an expedition, for us to look at our backpack and go, okay, I've got this supplies and I've got this money and I've got this water and and I'm prepared and I've got the strength. I've been working out and I'm, I'm ready to go. Now let's go. Now this is what Jesus is saying here. All authority has been given to me and all authority is now the church. So go. So when we go, when we do this amazing task, we go with the authority of Christ, with his power, with his resources, with his plan. We don't come up with our plan. We just live out his. We be obedient to him. But he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. If, as if the authority wasn't enough. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And very quickly, I, I believe Christian churches over the past, I don't know how many decades, I think have missed part of this passage. They've translated this make disciples into go evangelize. And although evangelism is a part of making disciples, it's just the initial part. And so what we've found in in a lot of churches today is we have people that have been won to Christ, but then they haven't been taught all things that I have commanded you. And so we end up with very immature infant Christians who then don't turn around and share their faith. And then we see the church plateaued or declining, and, and we wonder why. It's because we did the evangelism part, but we're not doing the discipling part. And I believe, I believe, I believe with all my heart, and, and, and our commitment is to this church, is we want to do both. We want to disciple. We want to evangelize. We want to do it all. Because we're commanded to do it all, not because it sounds like a cool idea. As a church. We should be about making disciples. 
So where does that look like for us individually? So you're going, Matt, yeah, you're like, our teaching here, and we're learning so much, and that's awesome. But this command is given to all of us, not just to the elders. This is given to all of us. We're all commanded to make disciples. Does that mean we all have to be preachers? No. Does that mean we all, in some senses, need to be teaching the word to other people? Yes. In different capacities and in different situations and scenarios and environments. But we all are involved in teaching the word and helping a brother or sister grow. Winning them to Christ. That's a responsibility for all of us, not just to the church corporately. So, well, my church is fulfilling making disciples, so that means I'm good to go. No, we have a personal responsibility. So, as a church, we exist to make disciples of all nations. We are a community of baptized believers who are focused on winning people to Christ and discipling them. So, moving on, together, the next phrase. Together, we will draw near to God and worship. We will delight in the glory of God, depend on the presence of God, grow in the knowledge of God, and submit to the word of God as the all-sufficient authority in our lives and in his church. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. If you read through that passage, and again, I, we're staying so like surface here, just trying to hit some highlights for us, but we do this not just individually, but this is as a body. That's why he says together, do this. Let us, depending on your translation, let us draw near to God, draw near with a true heart. But not just as individuals, but as a body, we what? We worship God. We're satisfied in God's glory. We're sustained by the presence of God. What else do we do as a body? We fervently study the word as a body. What else do we do as a body? We submit to the word. But I believe one of the emphasis in this passage is that we do this together. We submit to the word together. We worship God together. We, we are satisfied in God's glory and his presence together. We're sustained by the presence of God together. I don't believe you can be faithful in your walk with Christ at this point in Scripture apart from a local body of believers. It's not possible. Too much let us. And when it's just you, it's impossible. This is the context of the church. Let us. I want to read to you an excerpt from a book. Some of you have heard me read this already. But um, one thing that I'm working through as, as a preacher, as a teacher, as your guys' leader, is how, how do we take? So God, it's a God-centered community. And, and that looks like learning God's word. It's a large part of that is learning God's word. But I think sometimes we struggle, and I think John Piper, who wrote this book, has a good point. He, I think a very, very good point. He says, you know, we want all of God's gifts, the gifts of the gospel, like justification, even though justification is the heart of the gospel, but we want all those things in heaven. We want all those things, but the question is, do we want God? Do we want God? 
Or are we satisfied with all the gifts? And I think one of his points, he says, is he asks, would you be satisfied in heaven? If heaven was all these things and it was great and no pain and suffering, but Jesus was not there, would you still be satisfied? And if you can answer yes, then there's a problem. It's a problem. We should want Christ more than we want. We should want God more than we want anything else. So he says this, talking about gospel or God-centeredness. God-centeredness, he says, the acid test of biblical God-centeredness and faithfulness to the gospel is this. Do you feel more loved because God makes much of you or because at the cost of his son, he enables you to enjoy making much of him forever? Does your happiness hang on seeing the cross of Christ as a witness to your worth or as a way to enjoying God's worth forever? Is God's glory in Christ the foundation of your gladness? He goes on, he says, The sad thing is that a radically man-centered view of love permeates our culture and our churches. From the time they can toddle, we teach our children that feeling loved means feeling made much of. We have built whole educational philosophies around this view of love, curricula, parenting skills, motivational strategies, therapeutic models, and selling techniques. Most modern people can scarcely imagine an alternative understanding of feeling loved other than feeling made much of. If you don't make much of me, you are not loving me. But when you apply this definition of love to God, it weakens his worth undermines his goodness and steals our final satisfaction. If the enjoyment of God himself is not the final and best gift of love, then God is not the greatest treasure. His self-giving is not the highest mercy. The gospel is not the good news that sinners may enjoy their maker. Christ did not suffer to bring us to God, and our souls must look beyond him for satisfaction. What does it mean to be a God-centered community for us to find our satisfaction in making much of our God? How do we do that? We get to know him. How do we do that? Primarily through his word. We get to know God, his revelation of himself through his word, and through that we make much of him. We boast of him. We're satisfied in him. We find rest and solitude in him. We praise him. God's book is entitled, God is the Gospel. He goes on one more, a couple more phrases. He says, this, this distortion of divine love into an endorsement of self-admiration is subtle. It creeps into our most religious acts. We claim to be praising God because of his love for us. But if his love for us is at bottom, his making much of us, who is really being praised? We are willing to be God-centered, it seems, as long as God is man-centered. We are willing to boast in the cross as long as the cross is a witness to our worth. Who then is our pride and joy? This is such a stinging indictment on even the most apparently gospel-centered community. Because it can creep in so subtly. 
What does it mean for us to be a God-centered community? It means we're focused on his word. We are a God or word-centered community. And what I'm saying is we've talked about how that means being involved in the word and learning the word. And what I'm saying is we're going to take that even further in the days to come. The word guides and directs us. The word forms the community. Remember we talked about how we were saved by the word, sanctified through the word, and servants of the word. Not meaning the word saves us, but the word is what has given us the knowledge whereby we, might, whereby we, we can be saved. It's God's special revelation to us. We're a community in all of God's word. And we're a community trusting in God's word. move on in the covenant. It says together. Together we will hold fast to the hope we profess. We will regularly participate in communion as we solemnly and joyfully remember the past work of Christ on the cross. Celebrate the present work of Christ at the Father's right hand and anticipate the future work of Christ in his return for his bride. Hebrews 10 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And again, there's so much more in that verse, but together we hold fast to the hope we have in Christ. It's to be an encouragement to us. We hold fast to the hope. What is this hope? This hope that he's coming back. This hope that he will, like some of us, we're okay. Like we don't need this encouragement because we think everything's grandiose where we're at. No, our king is coming back and it's much greater when he gets back. (laughs) A primary expression that he has given to the church to remember his work, past, present, and future is communion. It's taking the Lord's Supper. It's not, I mean, like, again, a whole, whole other sermon, maybe five sermons of just what this means, what it means for the church, how valuable it is for us, why we've done it much more often since a preacher. I was convicted, and we're not doing it enough. Some churches do it every week. Our goal is once a month, once every month and a half, something like that. We have to regularly be reminded of the past, present work of Christ and much more. In communion, we remember the body and blood of Jesus. We reflect on our sins and his promises. We renew our commitment to Christ, each other, and his mission. This is part of communion, what we do. We rejoice that he has set us free and he is coming back. Communion is so powerful. Let's move on to the covenant. It says, together. Together we will spur, this is the third together paragraph in our covenant. It says, together we will spur one another to love and good deeds. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, and serve one another selflessly. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech and encourage one another with our example. I, I, that's one of my favorite phrases in this entire church covenant. And I think it just... Is such a beautiful picture of how we lead each other to the cross. How we help each other work out our salvation. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, good works. Not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Again, a reminder of the coming of Christ. But first of all, we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Spur, what's, what does that mean? The, the idea here, again, to remind you is that it's kind of like our kids. They learn each other, and they learn each other so well that they know what button to push to get that response out of their child. Or out of their, sorry, out of their brother or sister. So they know what buttons to push. That's the picture here. That we learn and get to know each other so well. Now, you can't know everybody. So for us, it's going to look like our house gatherings. You know, you get to know people in there so well that you know what buttons to push in order to spur them on to love and good deeds. Secondly, we gather with one another regularly. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. So scripture say four times a week, five times a week. No, God's word does not say that, but God's word does indicate that it's regularly. That it's regularly. This is at least, I, I think, I mean, of course, in the New Testament, what we see is multiple times a week. We see the body gathering. So it's definitely more than a couple times a month, okay? And, and, and all of us that, that, that I know, of, we're doing that. So I'm not... Houndiness. I'm just saying this is the picture. It's consistent. It's regularly. Third, we encourage one another continually. We encourage one another continually. 25b said, 10.25, the latter half of that verse says, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Encourage one another. As we, as we look forward to Christ, part of the body, part of our responsibility is to encourage each other. Push each other along. Bear, bear each other's burdens. Carry the cross for each other. As a body, we want to live out this faith together. We want to work out our salvation together. As we need the word, we need God, and we need each other. Does that make sense? Like, I need you, you need me, you need each other to live out this walk. God designed it that way. But we need more than just to be in each other's presence. We have to spend time with each other. We have to get to know each other. It's the only way we can learn these buttons. It's the only way we can bear these burdens. It can be painful. It can be hard. I think the picture, and some of us are beginning to see this picture, is it's, it's a glorious picture. Like it's an awesome picture. Let's move on in the covenant. It says this, we will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another in accordance with the New Testament understanding of church discipline and restoration. A couple comments. Church discipline is not primarily a corporately involved issue. When we think of church discipline, we think of, well, that's removing someone from the church and the elders get involved. And No, 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 no. Like, I pray to God that never happens again. But that's like, that should only be a very minimal aspect of us actually doing church discipline as a body. Like, church discipline should be going on all the time. Like, daily, weekly, where we are leading each other towards the cross, where we're reflecting on our sin, the log in our eye, so that we can go to the brother and help him with the log in their eye. Like this should be happening regularly. 
Because we're not going to get to the cross very quickly if it's just Matt preaches on Sunday and we learn a few good tricks and then we move on. Like, that's not going to get us to the cross very quickly. What's going to get us there quicker and working out our salvation more quickly is when we get involved in each other's lives and we hold each other accountable, we push each other, we lead each other to the cross, and in the process we're doing the same thing to ourselves. We're checking the log in our eye and we're leading them. We're going to get there so much quicker. We're going to run the race so much better when we do that. So how we approach church discipline with humility, deep concern for holiness. This is why churches don't do church discipline because they don't give a rip about God's holiness. We care about God's holiness here. We want to be holy for he is holy. The steps, private correction, small group clarification, church admonition, church excommunication. Why in the world would we ever kick someone out of the church? For the purity of the church is one reason. For the salvation of the individual and for the glory of God. Moving forward, when do we practice church discipline? We talked about some questions. The questions were, is there sin that is damaging to the gospel? Again, these are not one-for-one rules, this, you know, but these are help guiding, guide, questions to guide us. Is there sin that is hurting the unity of the church? That's a sin. These church discipline. The point is for us to get away from pet peeves, okay? There's a difference between someone, you know, every time they wear their hair like that, it puts me in a bad mood, okay? That's not church discipline worthy, Okay, or every time the pastor wears a graphic tee, it just drives me nuts, all right? Uh, hey, I got new shoes, but I changed my wardrobe a little bit. Um, but we're talking, we're, 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 we're talking about sin that, that hurts the gospel, destroys the gospel, the unity of the church, all of that. We our community that is here for more than just singing songs, we are a community focused on leading each other to the cross. Moving on in the covenant, it says, We will give cheerfully and gener- generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, the spread of the gospel through all nations. Remember, our hearts follow our money. Our hearts follow our money. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also, Matthew six twenty one says. And we looked at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 for our basis for this next part of our covenant. But in that, we talked about how we will give willingly. Or we give willingly. We give generously. Remember, you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. We give cheerfully. And again, the idea in that passage is cheerfully giving is, is almost a hysterical giving. I mean, it's like foolish and crazy that I'm, I'm doing this, but it's for him it's for the glory, it's for the kingdom. Remember, God gives us enough for our needs and then gives us an abundance for others. Not to store away in vaults to burn up someday. And I do believe there's good steward and a savings and retirement, some things like that. But it's not for us to hoard. And there's a difference between being wise with your finances and being greedy and being a hoarder with your finances. It's a big difference.
going on. Oh, last thing I want to say, giving unites the people of God. All of our hearts doing the same thing with our money. You think our hearts going to be in the same place? Like, yeah. It unites the body. Going on in the, in the covenant. We will submit to the leadership of elders who have been entrusted by God to serve and care for his body by teaching the word to us and modeling the character of Christ before us. And we will affirm deacons as leading servants in the church. We talked about a biblical truth, that a biblical model of church leadership is necessary for the church to display the glory of Christ. I think churches today are incredibly ineffective and not displaying the glory of Christ because they don't have a biblical model of church leadership. And I think that's both the church's fault and the leadership's fault. Or can be both, depending on the situation. Elders are servant leaders. It's not a dictatorship, but they are responsible and they do get the authority to make decisions in the church. Elders are responsible for teaching the word. That was her way of saying amen. Wow! Deacons. Deacons are leading servants. There is no, and I hope you guys see, there's no confusion in here about the roles between elders or pastors and deacons. I think there's a lot of confusion here, but I hope there's not for us. Deacons see needs, they meet them. The body affirms them. Moving on in the covenant. If we move from this local body, we will as soon as possible unite with another local church where we can carry on the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. Why do we put that on there? Because I hope you see that what we're talking about here, this covenant is not just for application at Renovation Church. These are biblical principles that should be in every church. So when you see this, it doesn't mean you go to your next church and they don't have a covenant and you say, hey, look, dude, we need to do this thing right here, okay? Like, I've got it already written out. You don't have to do any work. Like, here it is. We should do it, all right? Like, no. But these, you need to live it out in faith and live it out with the body and, and encourage others to live out those same principles, the same truths. And we see this covenant, again, as containing principles to be carried out whatever community of faith that God has called you to. Moving on. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's soak on these words for just a moment. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. It is the grace of Christ. We are only here today because of the grace of Christ in every facet of this body. It's the grace of Christ that has worked in each one of us to bring us to Christ. It's the grace of Christ that has brought us down this road in our faith. It's the grace of Christ that has sustained this body. It's the grace of Christ that has grown this body both in numbers and grown this body, more importantly, in depth and teaching of all things that Christ has commanded. It's the grace of Christ that has empowered us. It's all, it, it is the grace. So we, when, when Paul is saying, that may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, like, and then he goes on, just in case that wasn't enough, and the love of God, he loves us. 
He's designed this church for us to live out what he's called us to live out. And then the fellowship of the Spirit, we are bond as a community of faith, supersedes blood relationships. We can connect because of the Spirit at a much deeper level than we can because of our blood. But not only does the Spirit, or not, you know, in the Old Testament, the Spirit dwelt in the temple, or the, the, the presence of God dwelt in the temple, and, and, um, or in the Holy of Holies. And now he dwells in us. So as you go live out this community of people, you do so with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit in you. He's among you. He's a part of you. And the last Lord in our covenant says amen. Amen. So that's a fancy way to close. It means so be it. I had a friend, and every time he'd say something, he'd go, yeah, that is. Like, he'd tell me, yeah, we're going to go do this. Yes, we are. Like, it was almost like saying amen at the end of every phrase. But what we're saying here is like, we get to the end and all this stuff, and so be it. So let it be. I hope that... Um, so we've worked through this today, and as if we've done this over the past 19 weeks, I, I pray that God has changed your hearts. I just look out, not today, you know, today as well, but in Bible studies and conversations I've had, and I, I just, man, where we were at 19 weeks ago, totally different place. And where we're at as a body today is just, I, it's just it was glorious then, and it's even more glorious now. And you know, I just hope that that's just evidence of what's to come in the future. I believe it is what God's going to do here as, as a church. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to have our time of signing a covenant and our time of taking communion. Now, I want to do this in such a way that it stays reverent and valuable and, and meaningful uh, and I want to give you guys as clear directions as possible so that we can do this. So what's going to happen is in a few moments, some, the band's going to sing. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song, Here For You. And I think that song reflects our hearts as a body. We're not here for ourselves. We are here for you. We're going to sing that together. At that point, our kids are going to be brought out here to worship with us the rest of that song. Then after that song is done, um, I will give you further instruction. But at that point, we are going to begin signing the covenant. And what I want you to do is during that time, if you're not actively signing or, or whatever or moving, that you just be in prayer. Be focused. It's going to take some time for us to do this, but this is okay. This is part of us as a body, worshiping together, worshiping by committing to each other. So with that said, let's pray. And we'll begin to sing, and then we'll continue during this time. So, Father, um, Father, we've spent time, so much time over the past weeks, working through, um, working through these words that in our culture today is it's probably all they are is just words. 
Words that are not important. Words that are words for us just to forget. But Father, you revealed yourself through your word. And Father, these are words that I hope are reflective of where our hearts are at. That they say something that is true about us as a body. And Father, that these words are worship. They are praising to you. Father, um, let's pray that you're glorified in our singing and glorified in this covenant and glorified in our commitment and carrying out this covenant together. And Father, uh, it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Do you all stand with me? This is what we want to be about. This is the standard that we want to uphold and we want to be held accountable to. This is not a piece of paper. It is so much more. It's the principles and the words on the page. So at this time, I want, um, in preparation for Lord's Supper, I just want to give you a few moments to just uh, to pray to talk to God as you prepare to take communion. I want to remind you these things as we take the Lord's Supper. I want you to remind you that to remember the body and the blood. Remember the body the blood. To reflect on your sin. Ask God to point out any sin in your life that maybe is hidden or that you're not wanting to deal with. Reflect on his promises. I want you to encourage you to renew your commitment Renew your commitment to Christ, to each other, and to his mission. Those are the things that should be going through our minds when we participate in the Lord's Supper. So there is a a solemn point where we are reflecting and we're asking God to point out sin. And that's hard and humbling and solemn sometimes. But then we're reflecting on his promises. And we are making a conscious commitment of our lives recommitting to him, to the mission, to each other. So I just want to give you a few moments to bow your heads, um, to pray through that, to spend some time with God. So do that.